the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, there's this tabernacle in heaven, and all this stuff that was going on on earth was just a type of, it was a shadow, it was a portrayal of the ultimate redemption that would be secured for us through Christ, and that when Christ descended into heaven, he goes into this inner sanctuary where the throne of God is, not with the blood of calves or goats, but with his own blood as the eternal sacrifice for our sin. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Hebrews. There is more to the story of Jesus than you can know while being in this world. What we know he did here is but a mere shadow of that which he did in heaven after his crucifixion. Pastor Gary teaches you today that Jesus' sacrifice goes beyond becoming and dying as a man. He was disconnected from his Father so that he could serve as a living sacrifice for all of us. The burden that he bore for you, you will not be able to grasp in your lifetime. Nonetheless, you can take to heart that his love for you is proven and that your debt is paid. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Hebrews chapter 8 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Let's keep reading here in Hebrews chapter 8. There's more on this, but let's keep reading. Verse 7, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, okay, the old covenant, no place would have been sought for another, the new covenant, the New Testament. But God found fault with the people and said, and now the writer of Hebrews is going to quote from the book of Jeremiah. He's going to quote Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. 
And if I could just highlight with you that last section we read from verses 10 through 12, uh, how is it that the new covenant is better? So again, the writer of Hebrews is quoting from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is writing prophetically about this new covenant, this new testament, and uh, he, you know, he sees forward, and God gives him this revelation. And the writer of Hebrews is saying what Jeremiah saw uh, has been experienced, uh, and that is that Jesus came to fulfill this new covenant. And how is it that the new covenant is better? Well, one of the things that he says there at the first part of verse 10 is that obedience will come from inward devotion rather than outward obligation. This goes to a little bit about what we were talking about on Sunday. Uh, when you, you can control behavior only to a certain degree. And a lot of world religions try to attack the problem of evil behavior by a system of rules and regulations that will try to curtail or manage bad behavior. Christianity is different from all other world religions in that it doesn't try to modify behavior through an external process but what Christianity teaches is that it alters behavior through an internal transformation. And that when we are born again and come into a personal relationship with Jesus, there's an internal transformation that happens that manifests itself in external behavior. And so what Jeremiah was writing here and, and the writer of Hebrews talks about is that when we have this encounter with the Lord, no longer does obedience come just strictly because we're following a bunch of rules, but obedience comes because I have an internal devotion, an inward devotion, rather than just these outward obligations, these external uh, rules and, and the laws. Now, listen, the law is still important in that it reveals the moral code of God. But the law is insufficient in saving us. And that's, that's the big change of mind that we need to understand, especially the Jews who came out of a very legalistic system. They thought that obeying the laws are what would end up making them righteous so that they could go to heaven. Well, the laws don't save anybody. The laws just point out, they're like a mirror, they reflect my sinfulness so that I would cry out for a Savior. And thus Jesus comes, dies on a cross, and he said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but that the law might be fulfilled through me. So in other words, the way that we are made righteous is not by obeying the rules and regulations, but by faith in what Christ has done. He died for our sins. We put our faith and trust in Him. He paid the price for my sins. The wrath of God was satisfied. The wrath intended for me satisfied because of what Christ has done. So I put my faith and trust in Him. That's how I'm made righteous. You and I are not made righteous through obeying a system of rules, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Obedience will come from inward devotion rather than outward obligation. He also says here in this section that relationship with God will now be personal instead of legal. He says, I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. In other words, this will become a personal heart issue rather than this legal, very mechanical kind of a relationship. And then one more thing in verse 12, sin will be completely forgiven instead of temporarily covered, forgotten instead of held against us. So, you know, under the old covenant, again, you would sacrifice an animal and it would provide temporary atonement, but they'd have to do that year after year after year. And in addition to the annual Yom Kippur day of atonement, they would regularly bring sacrifices to atone for other little sins throughout the whole year. 
It was a national atonement on the, on the day of Yom Kippur, but you, you would make regular sacrifices to try to atone for your, your guilt. And then the reason I put forgotten in quotation marks is because it says here in verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. But when we talk about how God will no longer remember our sins, it doesn't mean he forgets like you and I forget things. Because God knows all things. And yet, what it literally means is he will no longer hold those things against us. That's what it is meant by he will no longer remember our sins. It isn't that God's forgetful. It means that he chooses to no longer hold those offenses against us because of what Christ has done for us. Let's go into chapter 9. Uh, well, let me finish up verse 13 first of chapter 8. By calling this covenant new... He has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. Now, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets off of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments. And above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. I like that little sentence right there. That's how many of us end a conversation by basically saying, I don't want to talk about it anymore right now. I mean, there's, a, there's a lot more here. I, I just don't want to really talk about it. Now, I love for the sake of most of us are goyim, most of us are Gentiles. And, and so we don't have the benefit that Jews would have. Some of you are Jewish. Uh, a few of you are. And so he writes here in the book of Hebrews as if he's writing for the, for the rest of us who don't necessarily understand all the inner workings of the tabernacle and the sanctuary. So this is helpful to most of us. Um, I, I wanted to be a little more helpful by even diagramming it for you. And so this is an artist's rendering of the tabernacle. This is, uh, uh, what, do, what do they call this? A... Uh, Cross-section, thank you, thank you. A cross-section of the tabernacle, some artist rendering, nobody was there to see it. This, you know, nobody's ever, ever seen this. Um, and, and so, but based on the description given in Scripture, we have an, a general idea of some things, even down to the materials that these various tarps were made out of. It was 45 feet in length by 15 feet across in width, and the tabernacle was divided into two sections. The first section, which is 30 by 15, is from entrance to this curtain. Now, again, this is a cross section, so, so the curtain is split down the middle here, okay? So you, it peels back the tabernacle so you can see what's inside. But this first section from the entrance to the curtain was 30 feet. So you have 30 by 15. And then behind the curtain was a perfect square. The remainder of the 45 feet... So it's 15 by 15. This part of the tabernacle is called the most holy place, or King James calls it the holy of holies. So that's the holy of holies. This part of the tabernacle was called the holy place. So you have the holy place and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. The curtain that separated these two chambers could only be entered through by the high priest. And that only once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. The writer of Hebrews describes, for our benefit, some of the articles that appeared 
in the tabernacle. And all of them have different spiritual significance, and I'm not going to go into all of it tonight. But let me take a cross-section of the first part, okay? The first part from the entrance to the curtain. This is the 30 by 15 space. And in it, we have a few different articles, one of which is this table of consecrated bread. So on this table, which stood about three feet high, they had 12 loaves of bread signifying the 12 tribes of Israel and God's care for and love of the 12 tribes of Israel. It also contained the seven-branched candelabra called the menorah, made out of pure gold. Um, It was the only source of light in the entire tabernacle, the only source of light. And that stood in, in the holy place, as well as the altar of Incense. Now, for those of you who really love the details of Scripture and the nitty-gritty stuff, you, you will notice that in Hebrews, it, it, what I just read, it talks about how this particular article, the altar of incense, was on the other side of the curtain. And a lot of Bible, you can, you can go home and read a lot of Bible scholars what they, what they say about it. But basically, uh, the word for altar in Hebrews chapter 9 can also be translated censer, which is um, a little dish that was used to take some of the incense off the altar and go back behind the curtain with the high priest. So it probably is referring to that. But otherwise, it is believed that the altar of incense stood on this side of the curtain. Okay. And they would put wonderful spices. Those of you who are into like essential oils, you would just have loved this. Okay. Because <laughs> it's just, you know, I mean, it's just a potpourri of potpourri of a lot of different, you know, uh, spices and aromas. And so just, it was a wonderful thing. And, and it filled the whole, the whole tabernacle. And then the high priest, once a year, would take a blood of, of an animal sacrifice and make his way through the tabernacle, through the curtain, into the other side, which is the Holy of Holies. So I'm, I've taken this cross-section and blown this up a little bit more as well. On the other side of this curtain was the Ark of the Covenant. So let me blow up a better version of it here. And again... You know, nobody knows where this is. Nobody has seen it. Well, Indiana Jones. But other than that, um, but ever since, ever since uh, even 586, when the Babylonians came, 586 B.C., and destroyed the temple, we, we don't see references to it. And, and so it's been lost. It's gone. Maybe it's in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. I don't know. But anyway, it's gone. And it's gone for good reason. It's gone because if some of these things were still in existence, including the temple itself, people would still be reverting to a man-made approach of how you get to God. And all of that's been replaced by Jesus. But once a year, the high priest would go behind the curtain and he would take blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on what is called the mercy seat. So the mercy seat is basically the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was three and three quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet high, two and a quarter feet wide. And in the box was, and he listed there, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, uh, the Ten Commandments, and uh, a jar of Krispy Kreme, but we'll call it manna. And, uh, and that's what was in there. And so um, the priest would sprinkle on the altar. So, you know, I, I just, I'm explaining all this because, you know, some of this is foreign to us. But it's important to get the whole picture because there was a very elaborate process to go through to be atoned for your sins. 
And if this is the ritual you're used to, and this is the way that you feel like you're being atoned for, and now all of a sudden it's, no, Jesus died on a cross for you, you don't need this anymore, it's all been replaced and fulfilled in Christ. You have to imagine, this is, this is earth-shattering to people. So for those of you who've come to faith in Christ and all you've ever known is a life without Christ, now a life with Christ, you, you didn't have to really unlearn things. But for the Jew who has only approached God through this whole sacrificial system and through a, a priest, um, this is earth-shattering. So you have to appreciate why he's laboring here in writing all these things and helping them, uh, helping them to understand how your sins are really atoned for, how Jesus is better than all this, and, and how you, you don't need to fall back into this sacrificial system. And so let's keep reading here, chapter uh, 9, verse 6. And so when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room, the outer room, the first part of the tabernacle, to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, the Holy of Holies, and that only once a year, Yom Kippur, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order, meaning the new covenant, the New Testament. So verse 11, when Christ came... As the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Again, so your attention. So the writer of Hebrews is saying there's this tabernacle in heaven, and all this stuff that was going on on earth was just a type of, it was a shadow, it was a portrayal of the ultimate redemption that would be secured for us through Christ, and that when Christ descended into heaven, he goes into this inner sanctuary where the throne of God is, not with the blood of calves or goats, but with his own blood as the eternal sacrifice for our sins. Everybody with me? So verse 13, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, talking about the rituals on earth, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? He's just basically talking here about external sanctification versus internal. There's a ceremonial cleansing that people go through, ritualistic baths. You know, you can go to Israel and still see carved out of the limestone there in Jerusalem, dozens of mikvahs, which are are ceremonial baths, uh, places where they used to have to uh, dip themselves before they could even go up into the temple area. So all of it was very ceremonial, outward cleansing, external kinds of things. But he's saying here, only the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of Christ can cleanse a person on the inside. And so, verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant 
that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, meaning the blood of animals. Somebody has to die here, in other words. Well, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has made, has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in his ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, I don't, I don't mean this in a crude way, in a British way, okay, so don't anybody misinterpret. But this is a bloody mess right here, right? I mean, there's blood everywhere. Because there had to be the life of, a, of, of an innocent in exchange for the life of a guilty. And as a temporary means, what God prescribed was, you can take the blood of an innocent animal, as long as it didn't have any defect or any, any inherent or acquired defect, and slaughter that animal. And this is God, I'm paraphrasing. God's basically, and I will accept on your behalf that innocent life for your guilty life. But Moses had to even dip a hyssop branch in the blood of an animal and then sprinkle every single article in the tabernacle as a way of marking it with the blood of a sacrifice in order for it to be deemed clean. And he'd have to be doing this to the people too. I mean, you get the picture here. There's, there's all of this blood for atonement. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Which is why Jesus, sometimes people ask, is there any other means by which Jesus could have been sacrificed? I.e., could he have been hanged to death? Could he have been suffocated for our sins? Could it, you know, today it would be like lethal injection. No. In God's perfect timing, Christ had to be sacrificed as a blood sacrifice. He had to be crucified. The shedding of blood, it was the pouring out of an innocent life for the lives of all of us who are guilty. And by his blood that was shed, that served as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why I keep reading verse 23. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, meaning the tabernacle on earth, to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Who's waiting for him? Amen? And he's going to bring salvation, the fullness of our salvation, when we are reunited with him, either through his second coming or through our death when we go to be with him. And so we shall be with the Lord. 
forever. That's all we have for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to listen to this edition in Hebrews again, or if you'd like to explore other messages from Pastor Gary's Bible teachings, just visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so you're able to keep up to date with every new program we post as soon as we make it available. You can even download our mobile app to stay connected to the truth of God's Word everywhere you go, in every circumstance you find yourself in. All this is found at our website. Again, that address is cornerstoneconnection.cc. Is there anything happening in your life right now that we could be praying for? We'd love to know how God is leading you and changing your heart. Or is there anything God's doing that deserves some rejoicing? Please let us know. We love that we can interact with our listeners and we feel honored to be able to pray for your requests. Give us a call at 703-771-1500. We'd be happy to do our best to answer your questions and tell you more about this ministry, along with the church it stems from, Cornerstone Chapel. So don't hesitate to call. That number again is 703-771-1500. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know But still you know You're not